I have a riddle for you this morning, so put on your uh, thinking caps. I can carry many, though I have no body. I can often be weak, but I am hard to kill. I shine brighter than any light, but you cannot see me. I sing the sweetest music, but you cannot hear me. I can bring warmth to anyone, no matter how cold it gets. What am I? A voice? Any other thoughts? My wife. Okay. I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about I can often be weak, but I'm hard to kill in that. Okay. What? Faith. Yes, there it is. You know, I wonder if someone would, if the kids were with us, they'd say, Jesus, because Jesus is always the answer of any question that is asked in Sunday school. And faith is a good answer for church, don't you think? So I am faith. Hmm. On a scale of one to 10, what number would you put on your faith today? Do you not want to answer out loud? Okay, we don't have to answer that one out loud. If you were to graph your faith with highs around 10 when your faith was strong and lows around one when your faith was weak, what would your faith line look over the course of your life? Uh, mine would start out kind of wobbly because I had to accept Jesus as my savior five, six, seven times. I was never quite sure that that prayer took. So I had to do that over and again. And then in my teenage and young adult years, those years when you know everything, my faith was off the chart. And then I hit college and then I wanted to serve God with my life and I hit that obstacle of whether women were were able to be in ministry or not, and I was wrestling with those Bible passages, and I was wrestling with God. And, you know, since then I've just had very strong seasons and, and also some weak seasons in my faith. If we were to map out, I want you to think about this seriously, if you were to map out your faith line and your circumstances of life line, how would that look? Like, was your faith high when you were rich? and then went low when you were poor? I'm assuming you've been both. I don't know, maybe somebody hasn't. But, um, or was your faith high in low circumstances and then kind of low in good circumstances because you didn't need it? I'm just interested in how those lines, how they would look in your life. Today we're gonna look at an exemplar, a giant of faith, and we're gonna challenge our own faith. We're in a sermon series entitled Our Bible, The Question Book, in which we are looking at some of the questions posed in the Bible. Some of them are very tricky, and we're asking those same questions of ourselves. And today we are in the book of Job. Our question will come from chapter two, but we have to understand chapter one first to get there. We're introduced in chapter one to Job, a man who was blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now let me tell you, that is an unparalleled description of character in the Bible. There is no one else who comes close to this high of an assessment of character. So Job was a genuine and thoroughly, uh, he was, he was uh, had some thorough integrity. 
In his life, he had 10 children. He was incredibly wealthy. He owned thousands of animals. They're all enumerated for us in chapter one. And then the scene shifts to heaven where the heavenly court is discussing matters on earth. And one of that court called the Satan has a troubling conversation with God. I call him the Satan. Um, the sounds are S-T-N in the Hebrew because the pronoun is there in the Hebrew, the Satan, and because this isn't the same Satan who tempted Jesus in the desert, many commentaries uh, are strongly uh, urging us not to import our New Testament ideas of Satan into this passage. It really means the accuser, so our Pew Bible got that translation right. The scene is one of a Near Eastern royal court where the king is conferring with his court the Satan is more of a job description than a person. The job was to be spy or eavesdrop on people in order to bring a report to the king. So this is not a literal description of God or of how heaven actually works. It's a scene set for storytelling purposes only to tell the reader in advance that Job's character is impeccable, that he is innocent, and that his suffering is not the result of sin. So look at Job, God says to the accuser, Job's character is beyond reproach. The accuser answered him, but that's only because you've blessed him. Let calamity come on him and you'll see that he will curse you. So God allows the accuser to take away all of Job's possessions, including all of his animals, all his wealth, including the awful death of Job's 10 children immediately plunging Job into grief and suffering that is intense. There's a lot to surprise us about this conversation about God allowing, no really causing this to happen to Job. But Job's response is even more startling. In Job chapter one, verse 20, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and what did he do? Did he cry? Did he fall into a depression? Did he scream until he had no voice left? Job fell on the ground and worshiped. Let that soak in. Worship is Job's answer to disaster. And this gives us an idea of his character and of his relationship with God, because that is not a natural response. He says in verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. I feel like verse 21 is a very good description of faith. What is faith? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord causes us to think, do we love God because of all the good he has given us? How much is our faith built on God answering yes to our prayers? Uh, to God providing material and emotional blessings to us? And what happens to our faith when calamity hits? In Job's case, the accuser was wrong. Job aced the test. He worshiped God instead of cursing him. Case closed. Not so fast 
we're going to pick up the account in chapter 2, verse 1. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. This is a court again. And the accuser also came along with them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to the accuser, where have you come from? The accuser answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then the accuser answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the accuser, very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Picture Job's misery. It appears that he was already sitting among the ashes in mourning over his children when he was afflicted with disease. This would have been a place outside the city walls, a burning garbage dump. One commentator described Job sitting amid rubbish, rotting carcasses, playing urchins, homeless beggars, village idiots, and howling dogs. This was a place of isolation, of physical hardship, of social rejection. This was the acceptable place of mourning. Job is given a hideous, disfiguring, uncomfortably painful, socially isolating disease. What were these sores? Commentators through the years have had a field day with this. They have speculated leprosy, elephantitis, extensive erythema, smallpox, pemphiculofoliaceous, who knows how that's said, chronic eczema, malignant ulcers. And we don't know what it was exactly, but from this description and from elsewhere in the book of Job, Leave it up there. We've got to feel it. Feel it. Uh, we know that the symptoms included inflamed eruptions, intolerable itching, disfigured appearance, maggots in the ulcers, chapter 7, terrifying dreams, running tears, blinding eyes, fetid breath, emaciated body, erosion of bones, oh, osteoporosis, blackening and peeling off of the skin. With so few words, the author paints a picture of Job sitting in the garbage heap of misery, taking a shard of a broken pottery nearby to scrape his pus-filled sores. Job doesn't move from his position. He does not speak. This is the bottom of the pit. What happens to us when disease hits us? It's true, I think, as the accuser argues, that physical disease touches our core most acutely. It takes so much mental and emotional energy to deal with pain. We can't walk with a spring in our step or a lilt in our voice. Depression often hits in combination with physical 
illness. What about mental illness? What is happening to our faith then? Where is God? What, what is he up to? Why did he allow this to happen? Why doesn't he act on our behalf? How is this fair? These are the questions that occur to me. But maybe it's because I'm a wife and I am on the same wavelength as the next person to speak, which is Job's wife. Chapter two, verse nine, then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Now that's our question for the day. Do you still persist in your integrity? We'll come back to that. Curse God and die. Now, she may have been saying, if you curse God, he will strike you dead and then you'll be out of your misery. Or she may have been implying that he should take his own life. She certainly is saying that his life was intolerable. And now Job has also lost his emotional support. But in all fairness to the wife, she was also struck down with everything that happened to Job. She had all those losses, her children, the fear of the loss of finances, and now she has to physically take care of this disgusting, sick Job too. I mean, it was more than she obviously could handle. Maybe she's saying, I can't stand it anymore. I have reached my limit. I want out. And notice that Job's wife takes the side of the accuser. She tempts him to do what the accuser told God that Job would do, curse God. And she knows, of all people, the wife knows. She knows God, Job has been a good man. He has led a morally good life. He has been a consistent, faithful worshiper of God. And this is how God repays him with, with senseless, excessive punishment. For what? Now, Job was not sinless. Of course, but he did not deserve this level of suffering in his life. This is nowhere close to justice. What kind of a God is this? Why stick with God when there is nothing in it for you? Verse 10, but Job said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Well, that's, a, that's another good question. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Job passed test number two. He aced it. But it doesn't feel real to us, does it, Job's attitude? I mean, does it to you? His submissive acceptance of suffering from the hand of God. He let off God a little bit too lightly, don't you think? Well, it isn't the end of the story. God does not immediately take away Job's suffering. There, this is still the middle of it. Job will be more vocal about his thoughts and feelings in the next uh, chapters, 40 more chapters of the book. And it's been noticed that the Job of the first two chapters is very different from the Job of chapter three through 41. And then Job chapter 42 is very like the one of the first two chapters. It's almost like two people we're reading about. And in fact, when we hear Job's voice again in chapter three, his words bear traces of his wife's. Although he doesn't curse God, he curses the day of his birth. Although he doesn't die, he speaks longingly of death. 
His persistence in his integrity, both in the sense of his moral conduct and his honesty, uh, motivates his own angry speech. And his wife's troubling question will become his own. So it's not settled with Job. He's still processing. He does express anger, pain, lack of answers. He does get out what's inside. The problem with suffering is that it just keeps going on. If we grit our teeth one day, then the next day there's more of the same. And if we hold on for one month, then the next month there's more of the same, sometimes months on end, sometimes for years. And we just used up our grit yesterday. And we've got no more grit left for today, much less tomorrow. So Job will face a third test. It's not going to be circumstantial. It'll be the test of his friends who comfort him with all the wrong words and sentiments. His friends who paint God with false colors. His friends who insist that God sent suffering for a purpose. And if only Job would acknowledge the sin that caused God to send these calamities to him, he would get out of it. Do you persist in your integrity? Job's wife implies that there's a tension between of honesty in her husband. Is he standing firm in his faith? If so, if he blesses God as he did before, is he being honest to himself? In other words, is he giving lip service to God, but inwardly is bitter and alienated? Is his faith real? Integrity means that we are whole, consistent persons. That what comes out of our mouth matches what is in our hearts. That what we think and say matches what we do. Integrity involves honesty and transparency. Integrity has a moral dimension of goodness. Liars don't have integrity. Criminals can't have integrity because their whole life is built on deception. Integrity only applies to people who are morally and ethically sound and those whose conduct and character flow from honesty. And a person who has integrity has to fight for it because there are so many ways our integrity is assailed in our society from inside and out. So think about your own life. Are you a person of integrity? Are you the same person at church as you are at home? that you are at work or school, that you are in your imagination, that you are in your inner thoughts? Is all of that consistently flowing out of a good and honest place so that if anyone were to observe you in any area of your life, they say, oh yeah, that's the same person there. This question of Job's wife demands that we check our faith, especially where it is most impacted by suffering. Is God all powerful? Is he just? Is he loving? Then why is this happening to me? And more importantly, do I still believe in God's goodness and in God's love in spite of what is happening to me? In those ancient days, they really believed that illness and disaster were punishments of God for sin. And the other side of that coin is a belief that riches and health were blessings from God, rewards for faith. 
And we know ever so much more about natural disasters, acts of violence and war, which is what actually took away Job's riches and his children. We know much more about the cause of disease. We don't really think that God personally sends disease and disasters to punish us for our sins, do we? And do we believe that wealth is a sign of God's favor, a sign of the quality of our faith, and that if our faith is really strong, we'll be rich and healthy? Sadly, there are many, many Christians who still believe this. There are Christians peddling the prosperity gospel that God wants us to be rich and is checking our faith in order to bless us. There are Christians who said, a pastor who said that the violence in Uvalde, Texas was God judging our nation. And they're trying to answer that question of how God, a just and loving God can allow such pain and suffering, but they're reducing God to a vending machine, a transactional relationship. Put in your coins of faith, push a button and get a treat. This is mercenary faith, as one commentator put it. Faith that is in it for the blessings. I call it fair weather faith. It only works when the weather is fine, but come that rainy day, that faith is an umbrella full of holes. If we believe God because our lives have been mostly good and smooth, how strong is our faith? We only get to know the answer when the storms come. Suffering puts us at a fork in the road where we have to decide which way to go. That's the danger of pain. We get to choose, and one of our choices is to curse God. Do we, in anger and hurt, turn our backs on God because God disappointed us, because God didn't make it right fast enough for us? That absolutely happens when faith takes a blow. Sometimes that is a fatal blow to faith. And sometimes at, that, at this fork in the road, people lose their faith altogether. Or do we take the other road? And do we cling to God all the more desperately? Even in our despair and despondence, even in our pain, do we hold on to God because there's nowhere else to go? Harold Kushner, famous Jewish rabbi and author of the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, he always wanted to write a book on Job. As a young man, he wanted to write it, and his mentor told him, no, you have to have years of experience and suffering of your own before you even think about writing about the book of Job. So he finally wrote it when he was older, much older, and he says, the book of Job celebrates God's awesome power, but recognizes self-imposed limits on that power. God imposed limits on his own power to avoid compromising God's primary quality, his goodness. So God does not intervene in disease and disaster in order for humans to be human, to allow us to be really human, in order for humans to have real choices, one of which is a choice for evil. But what God does give us is his presence, his Holy Spirit. 
how else do we account for the strength that it takes to make it through these intense times of suffering? In the end of the book of Job, after God has spoken to him awesomely, Job is satisfied not so much by the content of God's answer as by the contact with God. I think Kushner is on to something there. And as for me, I do believe in, in God. I don't, I don't get him always. I get him less and less. Less than I as a teenager, oh, I was very confident on God, on what he was going to do and his thinking and all of that. But I do believe absolutely in God's goodness, in God's love, in God's care for me. And I do believe that it is God's job to make it right. Maybe not yet, but someday. The Bible calls it in that day. When it says in that day, it's talking about that someday. And I call it one glorious day. That's my way of saying one glorious day, which is not here yet. He will make it right. We can't all be giants of the faith, but we can all have a mustard seed of faith. And Jesus said, that's enough. A mustard seed of faith is enough. So, will you live a life of integrity, of being true to yourself, being true to your God? And will you cling to that faith no matter what storms come? I encourage you to say, yes, I can do that. I can cling. Yes, I will cling to God. I'm going to need his help. But yes, I will cling to God. I can do that. God is good, and all the time, that is a statement of faith. Let's bow our heads. Precious God, you know, you know the things that we are struggling with, and you know that our faith has taken a hit at different times in our life, maybe even very recently, these have been hard years. Lord, you know. So I pray you would come close to everyone who has said yes to you. Everyone. That you would help us when our faith is weak. And that you would strengthen us when we are down. And that you would give us that hope for that one glorious day when we will be able to see your purpose and your plan. Help us to cling to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at Prayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.